Happy February, everybody. Welcome back to Irish Illustrated Insider. I'm Tim Priester with Tim O'Malley from Irish Illustrated. We're joined by John Bryce of Football Scoop and Irish Illustrated and Pete Sampson of The Athletic. We have a lot going on with Riley Leonard and uh, Notre Dame recruits showing well in a seven-on-seven in, in Miami. Notre Dame trying to retain support staff as well as L Golden, et cetera, et cetera. Let's jump into it with questions in segment two coming up, burning up the boards. Well, we're going to start with news of Riley Leonard seen in a boot around the Notre Dame campus. He had a, I guess some people are calling it surgery. Irish Illustrated has chosen to, to, to call it a procedure up to this point, but it's still the injury that he suffered late in the Notre Dame, uh, Notre Dame Duke game when, when Howard Cross injured his foot slash ankle, uh, and he had a procedure done. Pete, you may know a little bit more about it, exactly what the procedure is, but the timetable is for him to be back on the field for, for the start of spring uh, when that rolls around around the first week of March. Yeah, it's a the tightrope surgery. It's, I think we've sort of seen this um, when it's been in the media. It's been more, I think, with Tua Tagovailoa at Alabama and then Brock Bowers last year. Um, about yeah, at Georgia, uh, and it, it's an in season. How quick can you get back? It's very rushed. Um, this was a off season cleanup surgical procedure that I probably half dozen players on every college team have. Um, I'm not saying tightrope, but we're, there's always like a guy that has his shoulder cleaned up or his knee cleaned up or his ankle cleaned up. This was just one of those cleanups. Um, you know, it's like my threshold for like getting uh, worked up about this stuff is like, are you Kyle Hamilton or Michael Mayer? Um, Cause I remember reporting on Kyle Hamilton, having a knee cleanup in the off season that had no impact at all on his uh, availability, but it's Kyle Hamilton. So you go with it. Um, for Riley Leonard, you know, he'll be back for spring practice. It just, it's um, I guess a delay in some of the stuff he can do with Lauren Lando, but that's about it. And a little bit of a delay in some of the stuff you can do with your teammates uh, voluntarily. That's what happened to Hartman last year because uh, in terms of learning the offense, they still talk about how that kind of bothered him a little bit. In it, But it bothered him in the spring, not not in the fall. Um, yeah. I just talked to two orthopedic surgeons, and I'll read one of them. You'll hear lots of different estimates for recovery on this surgery, but most would uniformly say six weeks, no weight bearing. And then I said, doesn't matter if you're Riley Leonard and a elite athlete that goes in for treatment every day and stimulus he is, of course it does, but it's still six weeks, no weight bearing. But as, as Priester said, um, five weeks from now is spring practice. He's not going to get hit anyway. He can do a heck of a lot of stuff on the spring practice field. If it's one, you know, and, and it's six weeks from when it happened, not six weeks from this very minute either. So right, he'll be on the practice field. He was never going to get hit anyway. I don't think this affects too much of spring ball. And and I think it's important to note, yeah, the, the surgery wasn't this week. It was a couple of weeks ago, which is uh, additional front-end time for recovery. Um, same, I talked to uh, an athletic trainer uh, who works with a college team and indicated to me the same, the, the very similar recovery period. Um, Tua has been the exception. He came back much less than 100%, but came back and played maybe around four to five weeks precisely after his tightrope procedure. Um last fall or fall of 22 uh Cedric Tillman had the same procedure University of Tennessee wide receiver in season he missed six games and then returned for the final month of the season so 
we've seen guys already have it in season return and still be able to play at a high level. Um, yeah, it's concerning because it delays some of the things that, that Riley Leonard could already be doing to throw with receivers and start developing that timing, but it doesn't sound like it's it's something to to fret long-term or even long-term over the course of spring camp. National champion Michigan apparently had and has had an interest in Chad Bowden, our name's uh, director of recruiting. Um, they have wooed him. I, there has not been an official announcement or a decision yet that we're aware of, at least as of this morning. As Uh-oh. of right now. As Uh-oh. of right now. Yeah, I just, uh, that was my delay in signing on to join you, gentlemen. Chad Bowden okay. is officially staying. Great. Chad Bowden is officially staying at Notre Dame, rebuffing the general manager offer uh, from Michigan and Sharon Moore, rebuffing a salary. Um, multiple people indicated to me. Uh, north of maybe two hundred fifty towards three hundred thousand um, dollars, he will stay at Notre Dame. Expect him to get some increased uh, responsibilities and roles in addition to uh, compensation. But it's my understanding from talking to a number of people, my boss as well, um, that there was some money left on the table for Chad as he continues to uh, really be the most critical move that Marcus Freeman has made thus far, in my opinion, in an off the field role. So yes. Chad Button will stay with Notre Dame. Is there a real reluctance on Notre Dame's part? to go to this general manager uh, role and title? Um, that's another excellent question. We just saw um, a Ole Miss today go out and, and make a, a really big-time hire to get Billy Glasscock away from Texas to fill their recently vacated chief of staff general manager role. I'm told in recent weeks that um, Pete Bavacqua has been very active in talking with people on a national scope about the general manager position and why it's important in college football. And I believe Pete Bavacqua moving forward is very open to Notre Dame having um, potentially that general manager slash chief of staff position that takes on um, much more than just personnel responsibilities and things of that nature. Wouldn't you think then when you have a general manager in a chief of staff role, if it, if it's someone like, if it's not an all-time football guy, an old-time football guy like I was kind of talking about two months ago, that you would then hire straight-up football guys to do your film reviews on guys that are not yet in the portal that you're going to be targeting, guys that are in the portal you're going to be targeting. It's a, it seems voluminous to me that you, the scouting of co- all of college football for guys that can help you is massive. Is a massive scope. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Go ahead. I was please. just going to say Jack Swarbrick. About this time last year, said Notre Dame planned to hire a general manager, and then they didn't. Um, you know, uh, uh, Butler Benton from Arkansas was hired last summer, uh, who came in, but it was kind of more of a ops. Um, so yeah, it's this is something that's been in the water for a while, and I, I agree with what O'Malley's saying. It's just like you have to scout every player in college football every year. That's a lot, a lot of work. <laughs> and- Right before we started, uh, go ahead, John. Do you want to finish that thought? Yeah, no, I, I was just going to say you have to scout it. And while Notre Dame has very modestly grown the size of its personnel department um, in the past couple of years under Marcus Freeman and added a couple of new full-time positions or uh, done some things of that nature, promoted students into um, lower full-time roles, but still made them full-time employees. Notre Dame still lags incredibly far behind, um, not just on salary in that department, but in personnel and resources in that department. And I think um, with the onset of the 12-team playoff, you're going to be stretched even thinner in a lot of those positions. And um, 
It's arguably more critical than ever before for the reasons that Pete and T.O. outline. And I would also contend because the 12-team the playoff is just going to spread everybody that much thinner and, and have you looking at that many different things. What you say there, John, is probably uh, at least somewhat tied to the decision by Boston College head coach Jeff Halfley to leave his position as head coach and take over as defensive coordinator of the Green Bay Packers. And in accordance with that, right before we began recording this uh, Irish Illustrated Insider episode, uh, Irish Illustrated received a, a phone call indicating that L. Golden is not up for the Boston College job and to quote, nor do I want to be thought of as a candidate for the Boston College job. Now, um, that's not saying like, you know, we just said that Chad Bowden is staying at Notre Dame. We're not saying that L. Right. Golden is definitely staying at Notre Dame, but he is definitely not going to Boston College. And at this stage of the negotiation, I think everybody is feeling pretty good about the possibility of L. Golden uh, not only staying at Notre Dame, but signing an, uh, a, an extension that is going to, to keep him around for quite some time. Oh, we're getting close. When Stucky was fired, we said, uh, you know, don't 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 count on anything until the Super Bowl weeks have have gone. Well, we're about three weeks away from we can start counting on some things, I think. And that will be because uh, post Super Bowl is also involved in this. But uh, yeah, Tim, that's that's great. I'm glad you said it that way. He's not taking the BC job. It doesn't mean he doesn't want any job whatsoever. But yeah, I, I, don't, I, I can't, think he's getting I, close, though. You're right. That, we can't make that statement, but we yeah. we well, can. Let's not forget. Yeah, let's not forget that the BCAD is the same guy that fired Al Golden at Miami. So that's just yeah, it's the there's, most there's important no thing. Yeah, there's no compatibility there to speak of. And also, it's been indicated to me that at least first preference, first turn for BC in this search will be offense. Um, they know they've got to uh, generate some excitement. They know that it's much easier, as I talk with people around the sport, to you can sell hope if you're losing. Um, if you're losing football games 45 to 42, it's hard to sell hope if you're losing football games 13 to 10 and you also um, are fighting for visibility and have no NIL program in place. So I think that and I don't think Al Golden is in the mix for the Tennessee Titans whatsoever either. That's been indicated to me. I know there were people that that immediately fretted a little bit on the Notre Dame end of things. When the Titans hired their new coach from the Cincinnati Bengals system, um, nothing to worry about there is what I'm, I'm told whatsoever. I think Al Golden, uh, just as Mike Denbrock got a four-year contract uh, worth about $9 million, Al Golden also uh, will is um, working on being the recipient of a four-year deal with Notre Dame as well. Both of those obviously unprecedented in terms of length for Notre Dame and assistant coaches. I think Priester would turn on a BC job possibly at this point. You know, you don't want that one, right? You got to hold out for something different. If you're, if there's a bunch of coaching openings, that's not the first place you go. No, I don't care. I, yeah, I, I don't care. I don't care. Let my ass get fired. A, a fired college football coach is the best damn job in America. Yeah, yeah that's that's valid. That's a valid point. And and for uh, some fairness and balance in this story, yes, Blake James did fire uh, L. Golden in in 2013, and he fired him after after Miami lost at home 58 to nothing to Clemson. So um, if you were in his shoes, you probably would have done the same thing. But, you know, I know Al Golden had some uh, some issues there. And uh, for right now, uh, well, definitely not BC, but uh, Al Golden definitely still employed by the University of, of Notre Dame. Hey, in uh, a couple um, all-star settings, one – 
where J.D. Bertrand and uh, Maris Leofile and Cam Hart, good Lord, Cam Hart is just <laughs> lighting up the senior bowl. Uh, and then we also want to talk about Derek Meadows and uh, Owen Strebig, a couple of Nording recruits in the class of 2025. But what a shock. You mean J.D. Bertrand is fast from point A to point B? I, I we never had We never had enough film on him to know that he was – Really, really quick in short space. I tell you what, man. When I posted him running down, it's like Courtney. Yeah, it was Courtney Reese, who is a sprinter from Florida on UNLV on a seventy-two yard run, and JD Bertrand runs by Brandon Joseph to chase him down. I posted that on Monday Musings, showing his speed, and not a single human being commented on it. They just did not want to believe that JD Bertrand was faster than people that were backing him up, and they will be playing next year. I I have no energy to kick this dead horse. I cede my time to Priester. What was his uh, what he what was his speed? It was twenty point something miles per hour. Marathon. Which is hard. It's hard for everybody to understand the miles per hour thing right now. Still, don't you think? I need yeah. a I need I need an equivalent. But no, they use it more than the forty time now, other than the NFL Combine. But it's uh, we have to look up what Avery Davis's was. I'm not comparing the two his speed, obviously, but Avery Davis had the fastest at Notre Dame. Remember, it started in 2017 or something like that. And then supposedly Jordan Faison is faster than Davis. So I'd love to see what they were compared to Bertrand, like the different level of speed, of course. But we were we were always adamant that Maris Leofile was fast, but you couldn't judge him based upon his performance in 2022 because he was coming off of a catastrophic lower leg injury and he was not going to be up to speed. I think we saw we certainly saw some extended flashes of that during the 2023 season. I don't know that he had a consistent season throughout, but those guys have ran really well. And, you know, I always kind of felt a little, I don't know what the word is, but, you know, we were always saying that Cam Hart, you know, he doesn't have any defensive stats because they don't throw the football in his direction. And I always kind of thought that that was, I don't know, somewhat of a cop out because, well, ben- Benjamin Morris is, is on the other side of the field for one thing, but all you have to do is go look at the senior bowl film and people can't get open against Cam Hart. He is, I know he's got the three shoulder injuries and I think that that precludes him from being a first round draft choice probably, but man, yeah. the dude can flat out cover. He would shoulder be on the list. I tweeted this out and I just like, there are a handful of guys that I think we've all covered where you're just like, he's going to be a better pro than he was a college player. And if he was Cam damn Hart, good this year, though, he was damn good this year. Like, I think Cam Hart will be one of them if he's healthy. Um, you know, it's like Cole Komet would comes to mind. You know, Brock Wright for different reasons, Romeo Aquara. But it wouldn't surprise me at all if Cam Hart was just sort of kind of in that group of guys who was like That's six years. He's still starting the pros. Like, maybe we shouldn't uh, shouldn't be surprised. But it just compared to his college career, it, it sort of outstrips that kind of production. And I you think we, maybe ahead, we've maybe. talked we've talked about um, J.D. Bertrand and his football IQ and, and things like that, while people have knocked some physical limitations that he's putting to the side this week as well. I don't know that any of us, uh, certainly I'm guilty, of not talking enough about Cam Hart's football IQ. Um, and I think we saw that really grow the last two years. And I think he really 
is one of those who benefited the most by being in Al Golden's system the past two years. And I also think with Al Golden's NFL experience, that should translate for Cam Hart. So I'm I'm fully team uh, Camp Pete on this one in terms of thinking he'll be one of those guys. Much like Cam Sutton has been uh, on the Detroit Lions now and for Tennessee, Cam Sutton and Emmanuel Mosley are guys that you thought could play at the next level, but they're now in their six, seven, eight years of the NFL. And very quickly for Notre Dame fans to get frustrated when there's a lot of guys better in the pros than the NFL. That is throughout the entire nation. Literally, like that that's why the NFL is full of guys that were not first and second round draft picks. Every time you see the exercise for starting lineups in the Super Bowl, where were they drafted and all that, they're not a guys you've heard of because they were so good in college all well, the time. How many were five yeah. stars? How many? Yeah, four yeah. Stars? yeah. Cam Hart allowed this year 2.6 yards after the catch per catch on the season. He allowed 42 total yards after the catch wow. on 28 targets and 15 catches, 9.1 yards per reception. It's, well, a, it's he had an incredible year. And the NFL doesn't draft on finished products. The NFL no. drafts on what they have seen and what they project to see. So I think that's another key factor of that as well to you. Very quickly, when we're doing the miles per hour thing, we're trying to find like super fast reference. Now, Brian Kelly said it, so he could have mildly exaggerated post game. Uh, he said, Avery Davis, he ran almost 23 miles an hour. This was in a game against the touchdown against New Mexico. We haven't had that here since Will Fuller, which means I'm wrong about them starting in 2018 because Fuller left in 15. So I assume he means in a game. And of course, that means 22 point something. But that would be kind of one of those super fast program leading miles per hour would be, let's say, high 22. And I assume you're a little faster in a game. Well, they, of course, they probably I wonder if they time you. When they're timing guys sitting around in Faison, someone says that Faison has the fastest one at Notre Dame. He might not have been in a uniform and that type of thing as well. He could have been on a track. Right. Hey, Derek Meadows, 6'4", or I should say like about 215 now, wide receiver out of Bishop Gorman in Las Vegas, was in the uh, battle Miami 7-on-7 seven seven and really blew the people away down there. Andrew Ivins, Tom Lloyd from 24-7 Sports were really, really impressed with him. and. Uh, it's it's fascinating. Going into the weekend, he had five Power Five uh, offers from Notre Dame, Iowa State, Maryland, Michigan State, and BYU. And two days after Irish Illustrated published his uh, his film review and named those five uh, Power Five teams, added to the offer list are schools from uh, these little schools called Michigan, Georgia, Florida. In Alabama, he's been uh, very, very impressive. Tom Loy put a uh, crystal ball on Notre Dame landing him, but that was before these offers. So not sure where it's going to go, but it's just amazing how quickly a little seven-on-seven tournament can turn the heads of uh, some powerhouses in college football. I have struggled because of seven-on-seven tournaments to, I think if you try to figure out which position when you're trying to watch film, just watching film is the best wide receivers tough because you don't see a million things you have to be able to do on a football field. Derek Meadows has to be good at college football. <laughs> just, I, it's his. And when you say his, you, you say his height, no matter what you say, he's taller than that. He plays taller than what you said. Yes, and usually they play much shorter than what you say. Very true. Uh, looks like he's a really good football player. Again, it's seven on seven. It's know, not full contact. He's played what he's had teammates uh that have that have received the bulk of the targets and receptions but it'll be interesting to see 
what he does his senior year. He's a, it, there's a crystal ball on him for Notre Dame, as well as uh, offensive tackle Owen Strebig, uh, who's going to announce his decision, I think, next week sometime. If people hadn't been saying ceiling for 30 years of recruiting, it would be invented for Meadows. His is a ceiling Absolutely. situation. That's that's the best way Absolutely. to say it. Absolutely. And to wrap up this segment, just want to dip into, I had an opportunity to, to interview Harry Houston on multiple levels. And when the re, when the recorder was shut off, he asked me to turn it back on because he wanted to talk about the obligation of Notre Dame captains to participate in bowl games, even the most minor of bowls. I know there are a lot of people that do not agree with um, with Harry Heastand on that, but he wanted to make a point of stating that he feel and he wasn't ta- he wasn't talking about um, you know the Cam Hearts of the world with the three shoulder injuries or surgeries, I should say. He also wasn't talking about any other school. Uh, but for those that uh, that get Irish Illustrated, have seen some of the comments that Harry Heastand has made about Notre Dame and his his feelings and perception toward Notre Dame. He simply thinks that if you uh, pledge to be a captain in Notre Dame, you should play in any bowl game. Also, I'm pointing out that Zach Martin played his last game. Where, Tim? In Yankee <laughs> Stadium. In where it's all about against Rutgers of the Pittsburgh. Yep. <laughs> he was the bowl game MVP. Yep, yep. So <laughs> we had no one else to vote for, Martin. <laughs> kick, kick that around a little bit. What do you think about Harry Heastan's comments? Um. Harry Heathsand is um, notably old school and uh, fastidiously uh, known for his attention to detail, or or I should say fastidious in his attention to detail. That fits everything I know about Harry Heathsand from the time all the way back that I first met him when he was the offensive line coach at Tennessee. He um, And I believe, you know, he would have had guys that wanted to play for him in a bowl um, if he was still the coach. Not we, we'll never know, but but he has always been able to engender a special uh, relationship and camaraderie with his offensive linemen and a, certainly a respect there, um, even though Harry Heesan on a practice field is um, worth the price of admission, if there was an admission price, just to, just to hear how violently he coaches. It's, it's uh, artwork. Yeah, I mean, I can appreciate his point of view on – the obligation of a captain to play in a bowl game, no matter the stature of it. Um, I also can understand the obligation that a player may feel to himself and his family to put himself in the best position for the next level. Um, but there, I think there's a big difference between like you're a top 10 pick Joe Alt versus Maris Leofau, who's more of a developmental player. Um, I think he stands point, uh, which he has told me it was just like, do you think Quentin Nelson would trade, Mike McGlinchey would trade the end of the Citrus Bowl and how that felt for sitting out uh, and protecting themselves? And he would argue that they absolutely would not trade that, um, that th- those kind of memories are, you don't get a, many chances to make them. Um, you should take advantage of all the ones that you have. And I, I can appreciate that too. It's just... Uh, yeah, it uh, he's he's old school, and I can I can appreciate his point of view on it. Priest, I read your Thursday thoughts with the meaningless. Uh, yeah. So it, I mean, I agree with you. There's no such thing as the meaningless game when they're playing in it. But there is one aspect of this that people just have to realize and quit yelling. It's a meaningless game. It's a meaningless game because it's not meaningless if you're involved in the game coaching it. 
if Marcus Freeman lost that game, the last two bowl games, he'd be on a hotter seat right now. Marcus Freeman had to coach two bowl games. If he lost to South Carolina or Oregon State, he would be in a much worse situation than he is right now. Mm-hmm. It's not meaningless to those coaches. It's not meaningless to the guys that plays. But it does mean less to the players that choose to sit out. That's why they sit out. It means Absolutely. less than their money they can get, and that's what everybody has to accept. Of course. And I, you know, I think I don't think I'm speaking out of school here. I think if if it had been left up to Joe Alt and Joe Alt alone, he would have played in the Sun Bowl. But the the agents, I mean, the agents are so adamant these days, um, especially with a guy like Joe Alt, who's clearly going to be a top 10, top seven, who knows how high uh, NFL draft pick. So, um, you know, how do you guys, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole on this again, because this we're going to talk about in December, <laughs> but how do you guys feel about what I said when we were coming out of some of those um, interviews? Like Joe Alt could break his ankle in the bowl game and still be the number seven draft pick. If Audrick Estime does, he loses a lot of draft status and capital. If yeah. Cam Hart got hurt, he's done if he hurt his shoulder again. Like, yeah. so it's almost like Joe Alt could have played and everything would have been fine. Obviously, catastrophic injuries are different. Everybody's going to bring up Jalen Smith every time we talk about this. But, you know, that Joe Alt could have had a catastrophic injury against Stanford, Wake Forest, Pittsburgh. Once you stop with U.S. Okay, Clemson. Sorry, I'm wrong. Clemson. Once you stop with the Clemson game last year, Notre Dame's all their preseason hopes were, were gone. So it is weird to me that, like, the bowl game is so much a target rather than the Stanford game at the end of the year. Yeah, I think, I think it's just the I've, calendar, though, right? Like the coaches are involved. leaving, you know, guys are hopping in the portal. Um, you know, that's not a like Chris Tyree didn't opt out of the bowl; he went in the transfer portal. You know, and there are 19 guys that do that. I just like the, the portal. The bowl games now feel like they're 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 now separate from the season that preceded them in a way that they weren't in the past, and that's just unfortunate. But that's that's how it is. So I get. I get the point of view of like this bowl game. It's not meaningless, but it does mean a, a little bit less than it did before. And I think it just, it now fit like that month between the end of the regular season, and the bowl game might as well be six months at this point. Um, it just feels like it's totally divorced from the season itself. Yeah. It basically has become a standalone entity. And I also think perception is really important. You stop playing the second week of November I think NFL teams are going to ask you, did you quit on your team? I don't think NFL teams ask that about guys who opt out for bowl games. But if you opt out for the last three games of the regular season because playoff hopes are no longer on the table, then I think you're getting asked by NFL teams, do you feel like you quit on your teammates? What was your rationale for this? I also would just point out, if Notre Dame moving forward in a 12-team playoff is doing what it's supposed to do, there shouldn't be any more issues about captains eschewing uh, postseason appearances voluntarily. Yeah, and like, how much? How much did opting out of the Fiesta Bowl hurt Kyle Hamilton and Kyron Williams? Zero. Right. Yeah, you know, Kyron played. I mean, Kyle's amazing player, but Kyle Hamilton would have played if that was a playoff game. Oh yeah, I think they both would have. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just saying it. It didn't impact them in the their NFL development or their NFL perception at all. Um, Notre Dame would have won the Fiesta Bowl if they played, but that's <laughs> that's true that's too. Another discussion. <laughs> Coming up, segment two, burning up the boards. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. 
It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome back to segment two, Burning Up the Boards. Our first question from Irish M. What are you hearing through your channels with regard to the team recruiting, etc.? It's been quiet, except for the unfortunate news of Leonard's recent procedure. When it's quiet, it makes me nervous, like the calm before the storm. I don't think it's quiet. I mean, it's quiet from the standpoint of like verbal commitments, but Nordane came out of the junior day weekend feeling great about Dallas Golden and uh, Mark Zachary, a couple defensive backs, Jack Lang, the offensive tackle. Um, you know, I know it, it's like, it's funny, like Nordane had, Nordane landed uh, how many grad transfers in December? And you just kind of take those for granted. Oh, okay, great. There's another one. There's another one. It's you can't control the timing of news and the timing of commitments. I, I think a lot came out of junior day, just no public verbal commitments yet. But is it quiet around Notre Dame? I don't, I guess, I don't know. You can't, you can't control the news flow and the timing of things, but I think a lot of good things are happening in Notre Dame, especially coming out of junior day. Well, and and they're asking about team news and recruiting, and um, it's no secret to to what you mentioned, Tim. Notre Dame has great momentum with Owen Strebig, um, another offensive lineman, I think, as well. Manny, um, I forget his name off the top of my head, um, but there's there's momentum there with a couple of those guys on the team front. We're visiting with a bunch of players and Lauren Lando tomorrow. That will certainly generate some more chatter and a little bit more insight into how things are going. You know, again, not even a full month into the offseason or into the winter workouts program. Um, I'm sure you guys have talked to more people. I've talked to more people this week. They're continuing to um, adjust and acclimate to Lauren Landau's approach and to the way he's teaching things. I continue to be told how detail-oriented it is, how scientific it is, and that um, he's adding some some elements there. And there's people that feel like he's really going to very strongly be able to enhance or um, pull out all maximize physical ability, especially when it comes to speed and agility of these players. They think that that's something that's a definite focus that it, we reiterated last week. Marcus really wanted and is something that maybe um, not a knock on Matt Bayless because he did a lot of great things, but they think this is just something different that could put, pull more physical ability out of some individual players. So I would point to that. Um, it's different from a team building process to what it was under Matt Bayless. So I think that's an, an important thing to watch, but I also think that's where um, it helps you having guys like Riley Mills and Howard Cross back. It's February 1st. This is the time when things are supposed to be kind of quiet. If they're not, usually it's bad. So I would I would take the sort of low simmer of Notre Dame football at this time of year as a positive. I was uh, Irish Shem. Yeah, there's been no... I mean, since the the Chancey Stucky Mike Brown transition, there's been no, um, you know, major changes here in the coaching staff. We actually have a question. I think we'll, uh, John, you and I have a couple things to discuss with that. We'll 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 save further information on that. But um, yeah, it's when it comes to coaching changes, it's better for it to be. Yeah, that's, that's what's supposed to be happening right now. Is a coaching yeah, change being announced? The the quietness of that is 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 the good thing here. A question from Grand Rapids Irish 54. Can you speculate how the new leadership of Father Bob Dowd and Pete Bavaco, the new director of athletics, will compare to Father Jenkins and Jack Swarbrick? What will be their immediate 
priorities and their long-term objectives as it pertains to Notre Dame athletics? I think that um, I believe Pete has been in Rome with the board of trustees. I, be I believe I'm correct in that, or certainly um, if not still there, I think he was there maybe on the front end of that trip or was involved in that. Um, so I, I think that also from talking to people on campus this week as, as events have unfolded in Michigan came really, really hard after Chad Bowden. I think Pete Bavaca was very involved in some of those conversations, whether it was with Marcus Freeman or other people. So I think Pete Bavacqua is beginning to be more assertive in his dealings and, and how he handles things. And I think he's um, showcasing some of the, some of his leadership style by wanting to be involved and wanting to help be a problem solver, so to speak. I also think that the Notre Dame is examining um, facilities and in, in the future footprint of facilities very, very closely, TP. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I think we've said on a couple occasions that we expected them to break ground you know, shortly after spring football, that uh, you know, as spring leads into May, uh, not so sure that's going to happen, John. At that, yeah, uh, I, I still that think, yeah, we, I think we both have touched on this and and talked to folks about it over the course of the the week. I still think that they're moving toward um, wanting to announce, make a formal announcement about a new football operations building. I think they've talked to a number of, of families. It would be involved some families. Um, I think they've had conversations with the Guglielmino family, um, very candidly, uh, according to people on campus in the athletics department. So I think that was a big part of it. I think there's excitement. They felt there was real momentum uh, with Marcus, with the way they closed the season at 10 wins, with the way they recruited. And, um, you know, these things are subject to change. But I think there's still optimism on the Notre Dame side of things that they can um, make an announcement sometime after spring and try to formally break ground by summer. Question you from know, Oh, go ahead. I was going to add one thing. Interestingly, the, the timing, um, I mean, it's not an accident, obviously, but the timing of a change in leadership is pretty important because there has to be an adjustment to some of the things logically that Notre Dame holds dear. I want to talk to Jack. I want to ask Jack Swarbrick about this and Pete Pavacqua. I mean, Notre Dame's grad rate is going to change. Oh yeah, with, tra with transfers, yeah, it's not something that can be the measurement anymore. There's no, I mean, there's no way. It, it's not. Well, you, how, have, you have to measure based upon uh, players that stayed this long in the program, right. and then, then provide your yeah, and and freshmen that joined the program or something along those lines. It's an it's an interesting time for that. I mean, it's not really that's not important to most football programs, but it's always been important to Notre Dame. So it is something that's kind of. I mean, it's something no one ever does. All these transfers means you're not graduating for Notre Dame. It's, yeah, no it doesn't mean it's a bad, bad choice, but it certainly, it certainly exists. I just realized that um, we had been told that the Notre, uh, Notre Dame, the 12th football game this fall, uh, presuming Notre Dame Army would be announced by the end of January. It's now February 1st, and that hasn't happened. Um, good Lord. I'm too quiet. Too quiet, Tim. The Irish Shem was right. Uh, maybe it is. Maybe it is too quiet. Um, still think it's going to be game 11. Uh, but I don't know. But wait, when they're ready to tell us, they'll, they'll tell us. Question from Chris Koziak. Who are two or three freshmen, regardless of position, who if push came to shove and had to start, would be able to, and it wouldn't negatively affect the uh, season outlook? So I want to I want to throw this parameter out there for you guys to answer first. Think of it like Kavari Russell got thrown in 
and fared well, but maybe, you know, you're losing Benjamin Morrison. That would be worse. They weren't losing a guy like Benjamin Morrison. Matthias Farah is a redshirt freshman, but everybody thought when he came in for slaughter, this is it. This is terrible. This is not going to work. So it's kind of like, who's a guy that can go in there and start and be absolutely fine. So it becomes very positional for me because there's positions where you have a lot of trouble doing that. Yeah. Let's say he has to start. Okay. Cause otherwise the 20 guys that are fine. I mean, outside of KBA for Peyton Bowen or Peyton Bowen, sorry, Drake wow. Bowen um, at middle linebacker. It's, you know, you, could you make an argument for Gerby Lambert? Sure. Um, That's the name I wrote could, down. That's you could make an argument for Adrian Young if you wanted. Um and I guess Bryce Young would be the the fourth option there, but I I really think that would be it. I'm not sure that I could mention anyone else. I wrote both running backs, possibly Gerby Lambert, and I would have included Bryce Young, but only if you want to make him the one B. He's he can't go hold down a fort at strong side end like yeah, for that. For me, it was for me it was almost like uh, instinct, like getting my knee hit with the rubber mallet, like reflexes KVA first, second, and third, like I would feel pretty strongly with that. I would agree with with maybe a Kedron Young. And then could you could you maybe use a, a Bronte Johnson if you had to at safety or Logan Saldate in the slot? Or the only other one I would consider would be uh, Sean Seviano Jr. Um, if you had to have him at DT. He looks so physically impressive already. Um, he has those – um, beer keg thighs um, that we've seen the, the photos of. So could you, that's a position where you just got to sort of hold your ground and not get completely blown off the ball. So, so maybe you could see a guy like that if you had to, but I think you're right. It's so, it's so tremendously position specific that if you lose a DB and have to immediately insert a freshman, it's far different than losing your quarterback and having to meet immediately insert CJ Cox. My choice would be Micah Gilbert. Like, let's say you had a situation like last year where all the frontline older guys at receiver were injured. I, I, you know, I've seen more film of Micah Gilbert. There's just a physical maturity there. Plus, we also know the level of competition that he went against in high school, which was very, very good. That's the first guy that comes to mind outside of KVA. I mean, I think, I think we all feel pretty good about. Um, you know, he's going to he's going to be in the mix at at, at linebacker from. From the outset, I like guys like Logan Saldate. That's a good, that's certainly a guy. To your point, T.O., Bryce Young, yeah, I don't know about starting. That that would, you know. If he I got mean, bumped that, up a, a level of rotation, I feel like yeah, that, would be that, okay. would, that would be a burden that I'm not sure you're ready to put on a young guy. But, uh, you know, Sevillano, as you say, JB, a guy that, you know, I mean, if, if you hold the point of attack at that position, you've got a chance to get some reps and do some good things and, you know, prevent your team from sliding because you don't have a, a, a frontline player there. Yeah, the best thing you can do is that position um, is turn around and, and see the guy behind you finish his season with 100 tackles. Like, if you've yep. got a linebacker that's making uh, a boatload of tackles, that means you, especially in the middle, then that means your defensive interior is doing a lot of good things. I'll throw one in here because this is not a position I want to happen because I wrote a story on it. I finished that state of the Irish series and somebody asked for just do nickel instead of safety. So I did nickel. I know they're looking at uh, Benny Powell as a future nickel. There was a long string in Brian Kelly's tenure where they inserted the best freshman as their nickel. And he always got benched. That would happen again. I don't want a young nickel. If his name's not Kyle Hamilton ever again. 
freshman yeah, Nichols, not not young. And I do think that probably in the long run we underestimated Benny Powell, but I but I agree with what what you're saying in the short term. You don't yeah, want to future nickel, great. No, I, I like Benny Powell, yeah. future nickel. That's fine. You not don't want to put a kid no, in nobody this year. Yeah. Question from Matthew Bulls. Do you expect L Golden, Mike Mickens, and Dela McCullough to all be on the 2024 coaching staff? And that this was what I um mentioned as far as saving a name i'd, I'd throw chris o'leary's i was gonna name. say you could can you well, add a name if you add a name if you add a name i'll always say that i don't expect all four to come back because i'll go with the math and i'll just go from there yeah i think um i think o'leary i feel very confidently in stating o'leary already has heard from the chargers um he has a lot of connections there and served i believe together on the georgia state staff with mentor and uh with the navy dc volker um, so there have been conversations there. There's optimism, very high optimism that he will uh, stay in South Bend, at least um, not in pursue the the Chargers job. Um, you know, he's a Midwest guy. I think his family is pretty rooted in the Midwest. Dela McCullough, to me, is the wild card of that group. I feel very confident that Al Golden and Mike Mickens uh, will be on staff. And I would point out that Notre Dame has significantly fended off people for both of those coaches this cycle. Um, but Dela McCullough, to me, remains to be seen. We don't know how these final few NFL openings are going to shake down. Dillon very much wants to be a head coach. If an NFL team comes and says, we'll make you our offensive coordinator and associate head coach, I don't think Dillon McCullough could turn that down. I would agree with all that. I think McCullough is, is the wild card. Um, I think the the NFL, the prestige of the NFL, I think appeals to him probably more yeah. than the other coaches that we're talking about here. From CMU Penn's fan, other than play calling, where do you think the biggest evidence of the upgraded OC will show itself in 2024? And I will allow Priester to go ahead on the play calling thing. Well, I don't like, what do you mean other than play calling? I mean, <laughs> I'm not sure exactly how to handle that. I mean, that is what the offensive coordinator does. I, I, I mean, I just think, I don't think you can say other than play calling because I think, um, you know, he's. I think Mike Denbrock's going to get the football in the hands of the running backs, uh, uh, heading foot moving toward the line of scrimmage with a head of steam, which I think adds another dimension to it. There's no doubt about, um, you know, a healthy Riley Leonard and and how he's going to help the running assist with the running game with the read option, and that in turn, I think definitely helps you in the passing game. I maybe I'm I don't know how to read this other than play calling. I what what I, the, I, o- the only thing that comes to mind for me other other than play calling, which is the most important thing, is I just think when you look at the org chart of the offensive staff this year opposed to last year, it's very clear who is number one, Denbrock. Whereas I think with Parker, he was so collaborative. I'm not sure that it was always like the way to go. Um, you know, I, th- I just think that Denbrock will be the captain of that ship in a way that probably would inspire a lot of confidence in the people that are on the ship with him because he's been the captain of the ship multiple stops, including at Notre Dame before. So I just think just from our organizational standpoint, that that could be a benefit um, based on Denbrock's track record as both an OC and someone who's worked at Notre Dame. Yeah, I think that... Um... You know, Denbrock was the not only clear top of the org chart now, as you say, Pete, he was the the clear target all along when Jared Parker got the Troy job, which are, already brings him back on completely different footing than what Jared Parker inherited the job. 
and then his depth of experience, his having been the coordinator before uh, with Marcus Freeman, the defensive coordinator on the other side of the ball, also I think gives him some equity to have some pushback on Marcus at times if he feels it's needed. If he wants to say, no, Marcus, you want to do this, but I really believe in our offense right here, let's go score. Let's not try to sit here um, and, and just get to halftime or just get to this. And Marcus did a great job this year of being aggressive more often than not right before halftime. But I'm just saying Denbrock absolutely has the equity um, and the the resume to say, no, like I really strongly believe in this and here's why. And I think there'll probably be some more willingness for, from Marcus to listen in that situation. Yeah, Priester, I think that's a good point that when you say ultimately, when, when you when a, anybody questions play calling, not anybody. When most people question play calling, it is the end result of the play. So other than what's different, I'm not the play. The plays are going to have to do better. Or you're going to think the play calling's bad. It has nothing. To, that doesn't really have anything to do with play calling all the and, time. But that's what it is. And that's why, you know, again, it's a young offensive line. So say it right now. Just say it right now. Joe Rudolph <laughs> is going to screw up because the offensive line is not always consistent. Mike Denbrock is going to screw up because. The offensive line isn't always going to be consistent and what he calls isn't always going to work the way it should. I, to your point, JB, I mean, I think that there is, and Pete, I think you alluded to it too. I mean, there will be an authoritativeness to Mike Denbrock as the offensive coordinator that will carry weight that, that Jared Parker just never could do because of his inexperience. And as Pete said, the collaborative nature of, of, uh, you know, trying to get things straightened out in 2023. It's really hard to finish a season of college football at a high level where the offensive coordinator is, is liked by the fan base. You pretty much got to be LSU 2019. Yep. LSU 2020. Come out, come out and win some. I mean, like, seriously, there's always, there's always, because people 60 believe they, touchdown passes, 60, Tim. 60, 60. It's a made up stat. No way it happened, even though it happened. For those that don't know what we're talking about, Joe Burrow threw 60 touchdown passes that year. Four per game, an average of exactly four per <laughs> game. games, 60 touchdown passes. Uh, no, you're right, Tim, and it's just not realistic just because this is the team I cheer for. Their offense should be great all the time. That's just I not fired realistic. Steve Wilkes of the 49ers four times on Sunday during the Lions game, so on the defensive side of the ball, so there you go. That's I, I, get, I get it. I knew a very young Steve Wilkes uh, assistant coach at Notre yes, Dame. I remember him. Yeah. Well, I fired him four times, but he kept his job and they won the game. So good for him. All right. <laughs> I, Irish red, uh, Irish red two, three, three, three. Are we underestimating the loss of JD Bertrand and to a lesser extent, Maris Leofow, their numbers and play at the senior bowl have been impressive thus far. We should not base this upon numbers at the senior bowl they just, just gonna say all i can say is their numbers in play were impressive at notre dame their numbers in play were impressive at notre dame we're good jd bertrand was really good at notre dame we didn't just find that we didn't just find that out in uh, mobile alabama we said we're it, i think we're properly into, estimating the impact of their losses yeah I, I i think i know i said it i don't think i'm the only one i'm, I'm not on some island here going into last year that if healthy, I felt Notre Dame arguably had the best linebacking core in a, in college football because of all their experience and the fact that they could all fill 
different roles. I don't think any of us is going to go into this year saying Notre Dame remotely has the best linebacking core in all of college football. So I don't think there's an underestimation there. I do think that there is cause for hope, not panic, because of the young talent and because you bring back Jack Kaiser. So I think if you didn't have Jack Kaiser, you would be (laughs) hovering over, over the panic button and saying that's arguably the single most critical element of spring camp. And I don't think we feel that because of Jack Kaiser, because Bowen got some increased playing time down the stretch, um, because Snead is at least starting to carve a little bit more of a role, and because I think uh, – I know Priester and I are both incredibly high on Jaden Osbury. If you're underestimating the loss of Bertrand and Leofo, yes, you have messed up. <laughs> Next question. Uh, but, I, but, I do, but I do think – and, John, you said it. I mean, the fact that Kaiser – Yes. I mean, you have, you have a – you have a Jack Kaiser to to replace Bertrand with as the guy that runs the operation on the field. That is absolutely massive. But still, GD it's Bertrand. also time. It's it's also I get if you're a Notre Dame fan, it's time for him to. I mean, Bertrand started when Joe Wilkins was catching touchdowns from Jack Cohn at Florida Didn't State. Bertrand take over. I thought Bertrand took over for Manti. Hasn't he been starting for a decade? <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, it's time to see new blood at linebacker, but it's great that there's some old blood left. That's the. This is the COVID situation where we would consider these guys coming back for your number six. We talked about Leah Foudering, the COVID game at North Carolina for the first time. I think it's time for new linebackers, but they were good at Notre Dame. No doubt. And Drake Bowen and uh, Osbury and, I mean, those guys, KVA, those guys should be the next group of really, really quality linebackers for Notre Dame. How soon that all hits. Remains to be seen. Question from Slatty66. The Irish Illustrated staff tried to prepare the men's basketball fans as best they could for a rough season ahead, but watching the growing pains in person, is it better, worse, or the same as you were anticipating? I think I've probably perhaps seen them more than anyone on this panel. Certainly I've seen them a lot um, to to the verge of nightmares. Uh, it's probably a little worse. You guys know this. I'm going to use it publicly now, but I made this comment last week. The entirety of the Notre Dame basketball roster is um, metaphor to Notre Dame's wide receiver core this past year. No one is playing a role that he should be playing. Everyone is playing a role greater than he should have to play, and there's not great depth there whatsoever. Um, so because of that, I think the growing pains are perhaps a touch more than I would have anticipated. I didn't think they would get swept at Boston, by Boston College. I felt they could split a series with a Virginia-type program um, because I thought they would defend well and frustrate some teams and win some games because of that. Um, and they've maybe won two less games at this point yeah. in the season than I would have expected. I think that's where I would put it. They have two fewer wins at this point in the season especially in ACC play from what I would have expected. They have not been able to manifest any momentum out of a really nice win against Virginia at home December 30 or a quality win on the road at Georgia Tech, uh, a Georgia Tech team that now has beaten uh, who? Virginia, Duke, and North Carolina all this year, I believe. Boy, they were tough. But, man, they sure didn't look like they were a really good team against Notre Dame that night at home. No, but they've improved, and Notre Dame um, no has not made the same strides. No, I, I think two is a good number there, John. I would, I would say, never the, the giveaway was NC State. They, they that was a given away game. You, you couldn't lose that game. Um, if you watch them play against Oklahoma State, coming back on short rest, you probably should have projected a win. Maybe you get one at home against Georgetown. 
right? Yes. A team like that where you can get that. So there's two of them there. Um, and of course, maybe the BC, you, you split BC. You can split BC as a program that's best possible. Um, but, you know, if you thought it was going to be a lot more, I don't think you're being realistic. This 2.5, two wins is what you would expect more right now, maybe. Would you expect, oh, they're halfway through the ACC slate, two and eight. Do they I finish thought, it better than would, four and 16? I would have thought three and three and seven and then finish six and whatever, how many games they play these days. Six yeah, I'd say 14, going in. Yep. Yeah, I I talked with Tom Noy going in. I thought they could win perhaps seven ACC games. I yep, thought I they think could I go and six was mine. I thought they could go seven and thirteen. And I noted when they beat Georgia Tech that they were one win away from matching last year's team entire conference win total. And now, twenty three days later, they're still sitting here waiting to match last year's team's entire mm-hmm. ACC win total. I never, I didn't think they would go seven and 13, but based upon the way we've seen them compete and play defense and rebound, they should, they, they should be on a path to seven and 13, but two and eight is not surprising because their offense is horrible. And we knew it was going to be horrible. The defense is better than I anticipated by a lot. And the rebounding most nights is better than I anticipated. By a lot. So to answer the question, better, worse, or the same, I'm so I'm between same and better because defense and rebounding, those are two foundational pieces of a quality basketball yeah. program and they are in place. The NC State game was lost in the second half on defense and rebounding. That's why I think that's the giveaway. They that was when they got gave up, killed. I that mean, was when they gave up 17 offensive yeah. rebounds, and now it's a complete anomaly for this season. But offensively, we ne- there was never a reason to think that they were going to do anything consistently positive. And right. that's with Marcus Burton being about as about as good as you could anticipate, except for the turnovers, which count. Yeah, they go well, they definitely count. Oh, yeah. You know, Shrewsbury sat him down a couple games ago it was the first time you really saw a quote, punishment for turning over the basketball. A lot of them are just unnecessary, man. I know he handles the ball a lot, and I know he has to do a lot for them, but some of them are just such sloppy turnovers that it's it's really frustrating. But I am not discouraged because the shooters are coming. They're going to be coming in the next couple years, but the rebounding and defense is is – certainly they can get better, but it's in place. It's That has been – an established part of the program. And to me, that means more than anything because they were never going to be able to score consistently with this this group of talent. I don't want to belabor this, but my issue with the growth situation, I wrote about it in Monday Musings, is I don't know who's growing for the next year's team. Because if, if Shrewsbury is true to what he's said multiple times, they're not all coming back. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't buy that. You mean like he's going to, he's going to get rid I think of, he's going to try to find better talent in the transfer portal to bring in and recruit over these guys. Along <laughs> with recruiting. I think he wants to find more transfer portal talent. You think he just wants to stick with, stick with it, go down well, with the ship with. Well, no, but I mean, that was his approach going into the season that he would, this is, these are our guys. We're going to stick with them. We're not going to add two or three others that, you know, may just be a stopgap measure. I don't know. It's tough to say. He is, he is kind of all over the place in terms of his 
commentary and analysis from game to game, but that's what happens when you don't win for, you know, how many, how many weeks in a row it's um, you start to get a little bit frustrated. You heard some of the commentary last night that the, the players had said to him, uh, you know, or he had asked, you know, what can we do differently? And the, you know, the comments were maybe not be so harsh and critical all the time. Well, where's that get you? I mean, they were, you want to talk about a lot. You want to talk about a lousy cover last night. Notre Dame, Notre Dame ended up covering that game, and they should have been shot out of the gym uh, the way that Flo- uh, Virginia was shooting from distance. But I don't know. Um, I'm not discouraged because I didn't expect the first year to be. You know, you didn't expect them to score in the 70s at any point with any kind of consistency. All right, let's get rid of that. We're going to finish here with a couple ones for T.O., starting with a question from Maltese Irish. Would love to hear Tim O's critique of the newly assigned jersey numbers. You're going to have to share those, Tim. Yeah, well, Pete Sampson agrees with me that one jersey number was not changed, and that's a problem. I'm, I'm so offended by this. The great uh, Christian Gray. the first Gray. thing I looked Christian for Gray. when this graphic got sent out. Where's Christian Gray? And he's not on it. The Christian Gray will wear 29 through the spring. Maybe he's just waiting, biding his time for the portal, and he can come grab a cool number here at the end of it. But no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Christian Gray may be the best 29 in Notre Dame history. He may, that's all he over. may make 29s cool for him. He might, he might make 29 cool. That is the key to a guy like Christian Gray. So some of the best, I really like Jaden Osbury moving to number four. I like single-digit linebackers as long as they're fast. I don't like single-digit linebackers if they're slow because I don't like slow linebackers mainly. Jeremiah Love moving to four. I'm cool with it, but 12 was already already pretty cool, wasn't it? I thought I like it was. The, I like the Schuler move to number eight. That's a good looking number for a safety if he can hit. You guys on with on with me on that one. And uh the two running backs have great numbers. When you have Aeneas Williams with Barry Sanders number and Hedron Young wearing 21, those are those are really good add-ons. It's gonna be weird to see Keith KVA wearing his it is his number, 27, mm-hmm. wearing JD Bertrand's number, but I guess it's in the middle of the defense, so that works out well. And then Micah Gilbert, 14, and Bryce Young have to change their numbers, number 30. That's not that's not going to work. That's a weird choice, don't you think? Yeah. And, and Micah Gilbert, Ray Griggs, number 14. I don't know. I don't think that's the number for a wide receiver I want. Yeah, I, I really don't give a rat's ass. <laughs> DJ Carr will eventually change. I like... Right? Uh... I would say beyond the, I like RJ Oban at number nine. Oh, yeah. Um, I think that will look good on him. Um, beyond that, I, I, I think Michael Bell may have uh, saved his career with a jersey change to number 11 because he, yes. his jersey was even weirder than uh, Christian Gray's in terms of 16. Like, Who is that? I just feel like <laughs> 11 is just, it's, it's, Slim, I got so I gotta admit 16's not a great number. See, there you go. <laughs> yes. Right. Um, what do you if think? Jordan Clark is good. Number one's a really cool number for a nickel, yeah. but he's got to be good now. Did you mention Jordan Faison number five? I uh, no, I didn't. That's I like the 80, but five's five's probably fine. Yeah. You know what? Play well, and they'll all look like good numbers. Five's a linebacker next to Osbury. We need to get the three, four, five, six, something mm. like KVA should have taken five. I think we can all agree. If you're going middle linebacker, there you go. That's a yeah, that's a good number, but I think twenty seven fits him. But that's because I'm used to watching him yeah, on film <laughs> playing in that number. All right, we're going to wrap up with a question from DH Spartan nineteen eighty five, and it is: Is Tim O'Malley 
going to the Super Bowl? And if so, will he guarantee a win or a loss? All right. If anybody wants to, if will that guarantee my presence guaranteeing a win or a loss? So this comes about because I'm 0-7. Notre Dame is 0-7 when I go to or cover a Michigan game in Ann Arbor. So people are going to ban me from doing that again. Um, and also, as you know, I am 0-6 covering Notre Dame basketball this year, but I'm beginning to think that might not be my fault. Just I think, I think you can simply assume it's not your fault. Okay, thanks. Uh, I want to let if anybody wants to invite me to the Super Bowl. Um, I have gone to 10 49er games in my life, and the Niners are eight and two. I checked today. I went to two games with a subscriber uh, in 2021, and then the Cowboys game, two and zero. That's the only time I've ever been out to San Fran. And I went to a Bears game at 87, 41 nothing. Sorry, Jack Freeman, 49ers. Uh, I went to a Lions game at Pontiac, comeback win for the Super Bowl champion, 94 Niners. Uh, I went to t- three Colts games, two and one. I want to put this out there because the one they lost, it was the year after they won the Super Bowl and Doug Bryan was their kicker. And when he missed a kick to lose the game, 18-17, Harris Barton, the starting offensive lineman said, you work your ass off for all of camp in a whole week, and then a guy wearing Birkenstocks goes out there and ruins the game oh. for you. <laughs> and that's the only time that could ever make this podcast. So there you go. And then a horrible loss in Atlanta. Playoff game the day I moved to Atlanta. In 1999, I went to the Niners playoff game. Dirty Birds era, you know? Ooh. Yeah, so I was the only guy in Atlanta rooting for the Minnesota Vikings <laughs> to beat Atlanta the next week, and Gary Anderson missed the kick. A guy in Birkenstocks did it again. Yeah, maybe you can set up a Venmo account and people can. Uh, pay your way <laughs> yeah, that's going to be a hefty one to get me to the Super Bowl. I yeah. think. So. <laughs> All right, well, we're going to wrap it up there, Pete. You got anything else? You good? I'm, I'm good. Uh, just, I'm, you know, I, I did see a Brock Purdy San Francisco 49ers jersey around South Bend last week, and I yes. almost stopped my car and took a photo of the guy to send to you, Tim, but I, <laughs> I just kept driving. All right, we're going to be back next Thursday, February 8th. We had a whole bunch to talk about today. I'm sure it'll be the same next week. Until then, Tim Priester, Tim O'Malley, John Bryce, who has uh, escaped us here, and uh, Pete Sampson, this has been Irish Illustrated Insider.